everybody. I'm Nicole. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Sarah. And together we're the co-founders of Whale Tales, a living library of cetacean stories. Today we are digging deep into dolphin memory. Plus a dolphin story that you don't want to miss. So sit back and enjoy as we dive right in. Happy March. Spring is springing or fall is falling, depending on where you are. The seasons are changing. For this month's episode, we decided to do something a little bit different. Uh, we're trying it out. We would love your feedback because if you like it, we might do more. Uh, and if we don't hear anything, we might do more again because we like it. We're inviting you to Journal Club. So... Wow, what is Journal Club? Journal Club was something that I did a little bit in school, and I know my grad school friends, uh, like my friends who went to grad school, did it even more, where it's, I don't, like, I think they probably all work a little bit differently. Either it's, like, every week one person picks an article and then brings it and talks about it, or everybody, what I did in, um, like, a seminar class that I had in my last year was, like, there would be like assigned reading of a journal every week or usually more than one a week. Um, and then we would like talk about it in different ways in our seminar. Um, yeah. So that's kind of what we're going to do. Yeah. So this month for Dolphin Awareness Month, we are going to read this interesting, super interesting article called Decades Long Social Memory in Bottlenose Dolphins by Jason N. Brooke published in 2013, and we're going to discuss its findings and our thoughts with each other and with you. Hooray! We're very excited. Um, before we dig into the article itself, a little bit about the author and researcher. So as Lynn's mentioned, his name is Dr. Jason Bruck, and he is currently, from what I could find on the internet, the Assistant Professor of Biology at the Stephen F. Austin State University in Texas where he runs a cognition and communication and conservation lab focused primarily on dolphins, though he has done some research on a number of other cetaceans and even some other marine mammals and some other just mammals. I was going to say land mammals, but if they're not marine mammals, <laughs> then they are land mammals. They are land. Probably. Maybe. No, my brain's going off. <laughs> they're just mammals. On animals. Um, you can find him on Twitter at Jason Bruck. I say that and we don't know him. So yeah. also <laughs> maybe, I mean, it was pretty easy to find him, but uh, we don't all need to go off as like a whole whale tales pod and like go all crazy <laughs> on his Twitter. But he seems like a really, a really fascinating researcher. He's published some really cool studies on dolphin i guess that's like the senses of dolphins that's kind of one of the mm. things that he seems to be focusing on is how dolphins perceive their environment uh, and the complex social systems they have he's really interested in that and i found uh, there's a number of his research papers that are available entirely free online mm. and a quick scan of his twitter show that he's really, really pro-free access to science. Hooray, as are we listeners, which you've heard us talk about quite a lot. And I think one of the coolest projects that I could find in, uh, you know, a couple days search that he is working on is uh, focused on how to design a drone 
that could actually fly into a dolphin's blind spot and collect samples from the mucus that is mixed with the water and the air sprayed out of their blowhole when they exhale. That's interesting. Cool. Yeah. I know they're doing it with whales, but that's easier. Yes. Because yeah. slower and bigger. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The much slow hole is a larger target. Yeah. That's cool. That's mm-hmm. cool. Um, yeah. So this study came out or was published in 2013. And it basically is trying to answer a question of how good or how long how strong is the memory of bottlenose dolphins, specifically their social memory, which is their memory of each other. And conveniently, bottlenose dolphins have uh, signature whistles, which we've talked about, like, I think every episode that we've done so far this year. Yeah. (laughs) Which is funny. Theme Um, of the year. Yeah. So they have these long, like, long lasting like their signature whistles don't change very much throughout their life as far as we know so they um this study is trying to understand how well dolphins remember other dolphins that they've met over their lifetime um and seems kind of bizarre but there's a few reasons that you might want to like that dolphins might want to remember individuals which would be things like um, like knowing who they're related to to avoid inbreeding. That's usually like the most um, obvious one. But also um, like who they have gotten along with well before and might want to like have some reciprocal hunting behaviors with. Um, it would help to maintain social hierarchy in a comp- complex social environment such as um, bottlenose dolphins. And so ha- like having a long-term social memory, if the, if, this study can prove how long it is can then help to inform probably further studies about um, what they use that memory for. Um, If you can assume that they have a long-term social memory, then you can assume things like when two groups of dolphins that haven't seen each other for years come together, they remember each other and that can inform how you approach like very other interactions. Mm -hmm. Um, It's especially interesting with dolphins because they have, uh, it talks about a lot in, the paper fish fish infusion social system. So like um, small groups of individuals will come together and then break up into like different small groups, um, like throughout their lifetimes and throughout the year, um, throughout the day even. So like they're coming together in different social groups, uh, maybe for hunting alliances or reproduction or who knows what, um, coming together and breaking up in groups uh, throughout their life. So Lindsay, do you want to talk a little bit about how they studied it because like when I was reading this I was like oh how how yeah. do you do that <laughs> I know right <laughs> that's where I got sucked in so this experiment did take place in captivity over it didn't actually say how many years but I don't know did if the just... study took place over that long but because they had the history of the social interactions yeah. over 20 years yeah I think that's what it was so like the it took place in a number of different aquariums including the Brookfield Zoo Disney Animals Science and Environment Indianapolis Zoo, Minnesota Zoo, Texas State Aquarium, and Dolphin Quest Bermuda. So the reason I got confused about the years is because these dolphins have been moving in between these different places over different times. So they've had a multitude of different lengths of relationships, like less than a year. There's some calves in there, but also up to 40 years 
and they've been apart and then they I think I thought that they came back together and then they did a study. I think that's where I got confused. They didn't come mm-hmm. back together. They've just been apart. Yeah. But they have been together at some point. And so then they what they did was there was 43 different animals and they were from four months to 47 years. And the average time they were away was six years and they have moved an average of one and a half times in their lives between different facilities. So what they did was they used signature whistles. Um, They have the whistles of the animals they were in contact with, they had lived with in their lives, but also other dolphin whistles. So what they did was they started playing the non-known whistle, the unknown, unfamiliar whistle, um, so that, and played it until the, until the specific individual stopped responding. So it wasn't responding to a noise that was just happening. There was, and then they played the familiar whistle to see if they responded to that whistle being different and being a familiar whistle. And then, then they took a break and then they would do it again, either with a familiar whistle and then they would switch to see if they reacted to the same way when they did it again, but with an unfamiliar whistle that, Kind of makes sense. It makes sense in my brain, but mm-hmm. it's hard, kind of hard to. The setup was con- confusing, but yeah, yeah, it seems to be. So sense. the first test whistle, if it was familiar, then the second test whistle would be an unfamiliar, but it would be the same age and sex as the familiar, just to like root out any kind of other reasoning why they might be attracted to this specific call. Yeah, um, that was one of the things I really appreciated it was confusing to read about but because mm-hmm. also my brain is not in academia mindset <laughs> no. at the moment so it took a few times but I was kind of taken back to like my critical thinking and my critical theory classes in my undergraduate degree where you were supposed to pick apart the methodology of yep. different mm-hmm. studies mm-hmm. um and I found when I kind of like applied that lens to my brain and reading this article, like he really did a thorough job of trying to, as much as you can in an enclosed environment like that, really trying to design a study that would remove as many of the sort of like other reasons, other options. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That the animal might be interested in that sound as possible. And like, in my mind really, really went above and beyond to try and show Mm -hmm. them the familiarity and the recognition as opposed to just novelty or interest, which we'll get into a little bit more in the results as well. Yeah. So there was four different um, response levels that they marked. So it was head turns to her turn toward the speaker, but no approach approaching the speaker, but one meter um, maintained one meter of proximity for less than two seconds, approaching the speaker and stayed for longer than two seconds or made forceful contact uh, with the gate trying to get to the speaker or engaged in rapid swimming behavior. Um, and all of these responses, if they were to be measured, they had to be done within the first two seconds of the playback. So that's kind of how they measured the responses. Can I just say that in reading that part of the article, I now, because this was, like you said, it was, I mean, the study was published in 2013, so the research was probably done at least a year, if not a couple of years before that. And I was just imagining that if I was designing a study like this now, I would have different emojis to represent the four Yeah, me too. Definitely. <laughs> Some engagement. And the yeah. last one, the like forceful swimming, was like just like all exclamation points and the yeah. crazy excited face. Yeah, just like, oh my god, it's my buddy. 
<laughs> it's my friend. I haven't seen him in 40 years. Ah! Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, and then I didn't read this uh, entire paragraph that was about the stats because I was like, no. Yeah, no, we are not statisticians. But yeah, if you, yeah, I mean, we, we'll we we'll get to, the, Nicole will get to the summary of the statistical results. Yeah, but but the, method, the methodology of the statistics, no, nobody needs to know that unless no, you really, also, really want to. It's not a good audio content. <laughs> but there are graphs that you are welcome to look at if you want to look up the study. So ready to hear what the results were? Mm-hmm. Indeed. It was both not surprising and also interesting to me to read the results. Yeah. Uh, so we'll get into it a little bit more. But for uh, our listeners, here are sort of like the, the broad scope results. Overall, as you probably would expect and, and was concurrent with this hypothesis, dolphins showed a higher response to familiar whistles than unfamiliar ones. Um, significantly higher response i should say mm-hmm. and what is really interesting about that is that when he broke it down there was absolutely no effect of time on those response scores so it could have been an animal like the whistle that was a familiar whistle could have been an animal that they last saw a year ago or it could have been an animal that they last saw 20 years ago and that time difference and you have to think about that as a percentage of this animal's life not in human years 20 years is a significant period of time in a terciops life of almost dolphin's life it's probably about 70 percent of their life mm-hmm. yeah 75 percent maybe um but there was no effect of time kind of like decaying that recognition that's crazy. We'll take into that yeah. in a second because that's something I really want to get into. Um, but some of the other things that were sort of like statistically significant or not that were interesting in the results is that the age of the dolphin that was responding to the whistle did have an impact on mm-hmm. whether yeah. they were interested in the whistle and notably whether they were interested in the whistle because it was familiar or not so uh like you said there were three different age categories there were infants juveniles infants or calves sorry so a year young or younger is a calf juveniles and then adults which is six and over and the calves the under year olds were pretty weak at remembering any familiar mm. whistle, which is not surprising. They are no, babies. not at all. Yeah, <laughs> and also not as many whistles would be familiar mm-hmm. to them. But also maybe it's because we're looking at the difference between their excitement about familiar whistles versus unfamiliar whistles. So maybe it's not that they don't remember familiar whistles. It's just that they're excited about any noise. Like they and don't really care. Totally what it was. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I feel that's what it was. Yeah. Because yeah. they um, were like even more excited about the novel ones because they are babies and everything is new is and exciting. exciting. And awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So I yeah, wonder so harder to tease Also apart. like it's an interesting thing that I don't know if we'll ever be able to fully find out about like how this knowledge grows as you get older, like juvenile, like calves don't need to know, but like, Oh, I can hang out with this guy. Cause he's good for me to go get ladies with mm-hmm. or stuff like that. Like they have less interactions in general. And like the imprinting yeah. of their mother just... is the most important. Exactly. But how much of it, like how much imprinting do they have with like their kin and stuff? Like, is that important? When they're less than a year, does it yeah. 
but like also all is of it, those kinds of things. Yeah. Is it a skill that they need to practice? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that they have it for when yeah. they need it. Because there's lots of things that babies do that they don't need to do. Yeah, that's true. Uh, and then the other results, and these are kind of like nil results, as in that there there wasn't a statistically significant finding on it, but that's what is interesting, uh, that were really interesting to me, is that there were no significant effects of kinship, which is sort of like degree of relatedness. So they were equally as good at remembering the familiar whistles of animals they were not related to as animals that they were related to. Mm-hmm. And the sex of the caller, so the sex of the animal whose whistle they were listening to, didn't impact them. So it's not as though, you know, like potential for breeding mm-hmm. or a potential to avoid inbreeding was impacting those results. They were just as good at recognizing opposite sex as same sex whistles. And finally, this is the one that really gets to me because it also kind of goes back to like just how good they are at remembering <laughs> the whistles the amount of time that the animals spent together so that they were housed in the same facility didn't impact their mm-hmm. ability to recall those whistles. So it could have been an animal that they were housed with for six months, or it could have been an animal they were housed with for a decade. And yeah. if the time between seeing each other was the same, there's no change in recognition. That short, yeah, that's short cool. version summary Dolphins have way better memories, at least for this, than I do. I can't speak for all well, humans, but certainly me. <laughs> I was just going to say, like, first of all, they said in humans, the average time you remember a person is 40 years. And I'm like, I don't know if that's true. But <laughs> um, but also, dolphins have bigger brains. Mm-mm. But they also don't have most of their brain filled with Backstreet Boy lyrics. <laughs> I think. <laughs> I think. I can't test that, but I know that that's what's in my brain. If someone also, wants to so. give us money to do that study, though, <laughs> I'm down. Amazing. But also it mentions, so because I, I did say, like, they're at the beginning, their uh, signature whistles really don't change over the yeah. course of their lifetime, mm-hmm. whereas over 40 years, people do change. So if you saw somebody that looked exactly the same, I mean, first of all, you'd be a little weirded out because there was time travel, but like, yeah. it you have to be more familiar with people and also like they have to have expected aging processes, like not unexpected yeah. aging mm-hmm. That's true. Um, for that to happen. So, But it is crazy. I mean, we can dig into this a little bit more now, um, but as to the reasons why or why not, this might be so so strong in bottlenose dolphins, but it's crazy to me that they can basically remember signature whistles of even an animal that they only met briefly for at least 75% of their life, if not up to a hundred percent of their lifespan. Now some of the, some of the, you know, potentials for why that might be. um, And, you know, some of the limitations of his study that he recognizes in, in the paper are, this was an entirely captive population study so you know if you think about the number of humans that you have met Mm -hmm. in your life it's exponentially to the like hundredth power more yeah yeah. than the number of dolphins that these dolphins have met yeah 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 and yeah so it'd be interesting like i have no idea how you would do this study with um 
dolphins in the wild. Like that's one of the cool things about being able to do captive studies. But mm-hmm. um, like because wild dolphins, like once they're adults, would have met so many more individuals, it would be interesting to replicate with mm-hmm. wild dolphins. Yeah, I just don't know how. Yeah, no, it's not possible. But if you if we could just magic power it, um, it would be cool. Yeah, it would be really cool. I think the other thing too is like, you know, and like this is like a the difference in reaction. So like a strong reaction, like running into the speaker versus like a minimal reaction of like, oh, okay, it's just a speaker. Like um, that part I think is interesting too. Like it's not that they aren't potentially interested in new dolphins, um, but I think... And yeah, we talked about this a bit with the calves, but like, it's just the the strength of the reaction or the the severity of the reaction, even though severity is the wrong word. But yeah, like the um, the way that they react is just statistically different when it's somebody or a call that they recognize, Um, which is like, it's an interesting study. And like, that's something I remember from like behavioral um classes in university it was like designing behavioral studies is so hard because how do you like grade mm-hmm. a reaction like yeah so what if they just did really didn't like that dolphin exactly and now yeah, there's that now too. i'm like but what if you like how different did they all like did each individual react the same way did they react did they have reactions like marked reactions to all of the calls or whatever but did they have different reactions to calls that they had longer relationships with or that they knew? Like, is that a thing? Yeah. Like, is that's like a whole other level of study, but is even harder because you have to determine the behavior of the animal. And also like, and again, know if they had a positive relationship in general yeah. together. And like, that would be the kind of study that you would do on like even fewer animals. So yeah. like, there's kind of two ways to go deeper on this. Like, obviously... <laughs> Like to get more statistical significance, you would do it with even more individuals mm-hmm. and more calls. Um, but then also you could do it like a more in depth and like really analyze the behavior of specific individuals when exposed to the calls from other specific individuals that they know or don't know. It's kind of yeah. cool, like the yeah, and then the, the directions they'd have to do that multiple times to see mm-hmm. if they reacted the same way, and like, and then that gets yeah, even like that's again behavioral ecology of like, what if they just felt blacky that day <laughs> yeah to or they're like i'm bored with your study yeah. now yeah exactly like, <laughs> oh, that... i know that when i hear a noise it's not a real dolphin yeah, yeah. So. exactly i figured it out because i'm a dolphin and i'm smart yeah uh-huh. so yeah yeah that would both of those studies would be hard to do because mm-hmm. yeah like yeah it was very cool yeah. though but it's just one of those things of like even bottlenose dolphins like one of the best studied animals especially in captivity in the world and we and we we just thought of three different new studies four if you count backstreet boys um <laughs> which is the one i'm most interested in conducting the other thing that would be interesting would be to like and it, this has been done is like the non like other kinds of memory that dolphins mm-hmm. have so like yeah. that you know people have studied like procedural memory so like they train them to do a certain like um set of behaviors or something and then come back years later and they still know how to do mm-hmm. it um yeah so i don't know it's just it's just neat because then you can make um like ecological like social social and ecological uh like guesses about how group how group structure is important and all that kind of stuff 
very cool. So what did you what did you guys think? Final thoughts on the article? Yeah, I thought it was really interesting. I didn't find like I found the result um explanation really clear and easy to understand. I did not find the how the study was conducted information very easy to understand at all but it doesn't really matter in this case the only reason that matters is if you're trying to like replicate the study whereas i'm just trying to like understand what the gist of it is so yeah i was just i was interested because he talks about um how like you said sex and kinship status doesn't affect the recognition and all sorts of social knowledge and stuff but then he mentions uh some of the dolphins in shark bay which is a different subspecies of yeah. dolphin. Yeah. Um, and I don't know, and like, it's one of those things, I'm like, I don't know enough about the subspecies of dolphins, especially their behavioral ecology. But like, I, like it's not like he's comparing and making um, big assumptions or something. He just mentions them and about their open social network, again, like with overlapping ranges of mm-hmm. compromise of males and females and like just some of the ways that dolphins live in Shark Bay and then also... Sarasota Bay, which I don't know what species, what subspecies that is, but it's just one of those like, yeah, interesting well, I mean, things. I think that because there's this is so rare, it's so such a rare behavior, and then also so rarely studied. Mm-hmm. Like you kind of like at least a subspecies is better than comparing them to yeah. Like elephants. Oh yeah, totally. So. <laughs> it made it really just made me think about again subspecies and like mm, we know how different. The ecotypes of killer whales are, and the, how different mm-hmm. their social relationships are, and it's not like we haven't—they haven't studied the social relationships of wild um, Atlantic bottlenose dolphins, and they have a ton of information about that as well. But it's just one of those things of like, huh? I wonder if it's yeah. different. Yeah. Like, not that this is wrong. It's just like there's another study for you. Yep. Again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of like, is it different? Study. So yeah, just the thing that I thought about because. Especially because how uh, much we've talked about the differences in even just the ecotypes here in BC of orcas and how different their social relationships are with each other. and But who knows what that has to do with their vocalizations and what, you know, it's, we can't know. So I don't know. That was my thought. It was really well, well thought out. It was. It was, it was very thoughty. It was a very thoughty thought. <laughs> And we would love to hear your thoughts on this study, listeners, and also on Journal Club, if you uh, would like us to do this again every once in a while. We have included a link in the show notes to where you can find the complete article, Ray for Free Access to Science. Uh, and Yay. please let us know what you thought. Uh, before we continue with the rest of the episode, we do want to take a moment to tell you about how you can support our podcast with, and everything we do at Whale Tales. One way you can support us is becoming a patron on our Patreon at patreon.com slash whaletales. We have uh, different levels of Patreon support. For a dollar a month, you can join at the porpoise level. For $5 a month, you can join at the dolphin level. And for $10 a month, you can join at the whale level. Yay! Each level comes with a variety of perks, including discounts on our merch, like our Whaley Great Day shirts and coffee mugs, which I needed this morning. (laughs) Uh, You also get thank you postcards, access to extended interviews and stories with our guests, and you can produce your own fun flipper fact segment of the pod. We really want to thank all of our patrons for all of their continued support. You guys are truly amazing. 
And if you aren't able to support us financially, that's totally fine. Totally get it. Uh, there's other things that you can do to help us out. You can leave us a rating or a review on your podcast platform of choice, like Apple Podcasts or Spotify. This will help other people find the podcast. Uh, you can also tell your cetacean science and podcast loving friends about the podcast or about everything about Whale Tales so that they can listen and follow along too. And then you can follow us on social media. Remember that our Instagram account was changed. Thanks, hackers, earlier this year. So if you were following us before, you can now find us at whaletales underscore org. If you don't remember if you changed your following, please go check. Uh, because we know that a lot of people haven't noticed that we have changed our name. So please go check that and you can send us your feedback so that we can keep making the podcast even better. It's time for Fun Flipper Fact. Woohoo! Today's Fun Flipper Fact is also about signature whistles. Oh! <laughs> because it's been on my mind since we, I, we, we have had it come up whether purposely or just because of listener questions for every episode so far this year. And I started thinking, you know, there are a lot of things in, in everyday life, certainly, but certainly in cetacean science as well, that we just take for granted that we know. And I thought that for today's fun flipper fact, because we're talking about another researcher during the discussion piece and giving credit to his research that it would be nice to recognize who actually discovered the signature whistles of bottomless dolphins and how long have we known about them. Finding this information was hard. (laughs) So it made me more determined and then more sort of like soapboxy to make this today's (laughs) fun flipper fact. So uh, I will include a link to the article in which the sort of discovery of individual whistles or or what we now call signature whistles was discovered. It is not, unfortunately, the whole article um, because it was published 56 years ago. It is old. That is a long time. I did not expect that. I did not expect that we knew about bottlenose dolphin signature whistles for that long. Um, I would have maybe guessed because that's the 70s, right? Yeah. Or late, yeah. 65. Just, 65. Yeah. And because I know that we were studying dolphins in captivity in the 70s. It was Caldwell and Caldwell. Melba C. Caldwell and David K. Caldwell uh, were the two authors of the study called Individualized Whistle contours in bottlenose dolphins specifically terciops truncatus and what was really interesting in what i could get access to of this article was that prior to 1965 and prior to the publication of this particular article by the caldwells research in bottlenose dolphin which is what most of the cetacean research was at that time because slipper (laughs) um research into bottlenose dolphin communication was approaching it from that perspective that I think, you know, when I was a kid and I started, you know, I wrote in my little like Lisa Frank diary, I'm going to learn to speak dolphin one day. Really did. Really believed that. Um, maybe one day. <laughs> they were approaching the study of bottomless dolphin communication from the perspective that when, and this is grossly oversimplified, but let's say when a bottomless dolphin goes, that means fish. And when a bottlenose dolphin goes, 
together, that means let's get busy. So they were kind of approaching it from like every repeated sound that we hear, regardless of which individual it comes from, means the same thing. Um, and it was only after the publication of this study in 1965 by the Caldwell that they did a complete 180, like, and I mean the scientific community did a complete 180 in how they studied, studied bottom-nose dolphin communication and, as a result, sort of cetacean communication as a whole. So I found that really fascinating, that this one discovery of this one thing about this one species of cetacean really changed the focus of all communication research for decades moving forward. So whether that's right or wrong, I am not one to say, but credit where credit is due. Melba Caldwell and David Caldwell, you discovered something really awesome, and we have been discovering more and more and more about it for the past 56 years. Thank you. Yeah. Well, I was just going to say, like, if that's the case, then probably they had some impact on the people who discovered humpback songs Mm -hmm. and made the album and are responsible for saving humpbacks (laughs) it's all interconnected Mm -hmm. so there you go fun flipper facted now it's time for a whale tale after all of that pondering uh, we have another story from our friend Kristen powers and this one about seeing dolphins whoa what's the theme uh long and short beak common dolphins in san diego if you heard my fin whale story a couple episodes ago You'll know that I grew up whale watching off of Gloucester, Massachusetts. And in that time that I lived there and was whale watching, I never saw a wild dolphin, which was always a little disappointing to me because dolphins are awesome, right? So much to my surprise, when I moved here to San Diego just about six years ago now, you could see wild dolphins from the beach. We have a local pod of coastal bottlenose. And how amazing was it to watch them surf? So I knew that I had to get out there. Now, it is the middle of COVID. It's July 5th, 2020, the day after Independence Day. My roommate and I head out on a private charter. They had just opened up outdoor activities again, masked, obviously. And we wanted to see something. It was starting into blue whale season. Coastal humpbacks were around. Like, what were we going to see? And we had no idea that we might get skunked by the whales, but not the dolphins. Very shortly after pulling out of a very choppy Mission Bay channel, we see some churn on the horizon that isn't normal swell. And within 10 minutes, we are suddenly surrounded by a super megapod of long-beaked common dolphins. There were babies, they were riding the bow, some of them were even vocalizing as they jumped out of the water. I was in utter glory. I had never experienced this. And on the entire two and a half, enc- two and a half hour encounter, we must have seen every common dolphin in Southern California waters. Not just the long beaks, but also short beaked, who I'd also, again, never seen and never knew that they were so acrobatic and silly and crazy and just constantly leaping out of the water. I honestly don't think they know how to swim regularly because they are just entirely launching themselves out. It's wild. The best thing, though, was seeing the babies. Oh, these adorable little footballs. I could not even bear 
the giddiness of seeing these tiny little things, most of them still with fetal folds, and the joy that it brought me to see them so close. We had dolphins jumping so close to the boat that if I was a jerk, I could have reached my hand out and touched them. And I will never forget those moments of them just surrounding us, all of a sudden disappearing, feeding. There was a huge bait ball we saw on the fish finder on the boat. And then, boom, everyone was up at the surface again. And that happened constantly. And I was just enamored. I've always loved dolphins. Unfortunately, I'd only ever really seen them in captivity. But their playfulness, their intuitiveness to not get hit by the boat, everything about them was just incredible, especially when I leaned over the bow and made eye contact. I swear my life changed in that moment. And every time I've gone out since then and have been able to see dolphins in the wild on a whale watch here, I look for that connection with them. It is life-changing, as I said. It really feels like you are connecting with the animal, that they see you, and I get choked up every time it happens because it is a very emotional experience for me. I am just so in love with these creatures and it is so amazing to be able to get to spend time with them on the water and watch them naturally. I just, you know, we love them. We love them all. Awesome. Uh, Thanks so much for the great story. So before we finish the podcast, it is spring in the Northern Hemisphere, and that calls to mind spring cleaning, and I need to clean my house because it's perpetually not, because I have children. Oh, I am feeling that today. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I love my kids, um, but they are messy, and one of the things that I have been trying to focus on so far this year is, um, you know, all, I think all of us are always trying to do our best to kind of like lessen our footprint um, and to make sustainable choices in everything that we do. Uh, and one of the sort of New Year's resolutions I made for myself this year was that whenever I'm buying something, anything that I'm going to buy online and not just run to the store with, because I don't go to the store basically ever, <laughs> um, I wanted to try and see if there was uh, made in Canada, um, and in particular made by Indigenous peoples, but definitely made in Canada version of the product that I wanted to buy. So it goes, you know, like the rain boots that I had to get for my three-year-old, and um, I was finishing up some glass cleaner, cleaning the windows, because all of a sudden it's sunny. (laughs) Uh (laughs) I noticed they were very dirty because peanut butter fingers. Um, And, you know, it's, it's, this is the kind of like mentality that we always talk about when it's just, you know, like being aware of your consumerism and aware of the choices you make. I, you know, I've had that same glass cleaner that I pick up for whatever is like three bucks at the grocery store gosh knows how many times and so because I made this my new year's resolution I was just like I wonder if there's an alternative I wonder if there you know I I wanted to kind of slowly but surely move our house to reusable refillable cleaning supplies uh I have in the past tried to make my own cleaning supplies and I don't know if it's my ability to make them or just the messes that my family makes that sometimes I need something <laughs> a little bit stronger. 
Um, and so at least in Canada, I found a Canadian made reusable cleaning supplies company called Philo. It's made in Quebec. And I wanted to share them with you and any of our Canadian listeners, but also just kind of talk about if you are in the spring cleaning mindset, if you're tidying up, if you're looking um, to just, you know, again, just, you know, this is, is something I normally would never have thought of. And it did take me, you know, a good 20 minutes of internet research to find, but I'm really glad that I did because I was able to support a Canadian company, uh, a French Canadian company that has beautiful, beautiful reusable glass spray bottles. Uh, I have two of them now uh, with silicone sleeves so that my three-year-old, actually, I've let him use it and it has held up to that. They felt like really good quality glass with this silicone base. And then the little like dissolvable tabs like, I guess that you oh, put so you oh, fill yeah, it up yeah. with your own water and then you just put the dissolvable tab in and this company also was like no plastic at all in the shipping so it came wrapped in that like paper that <laughs> instead of the air packs or the styrofoam packs um and the bag I guess the yeah, the little package that the dissolvable tab for the cleaning solution comes in is compostable. So that's called Philo. They are awesome. And I was really, I feel really proud to be able to like talk to my kid and talk to my family about doing that and the importance of trying to, trying to find sustainable alternatives, even for some really, really simple things that we take for granted. Do you guys have any cleaning on the, on the brain? (laughs) I also need to do, I need to do the outside of my windows because I usually can restrain myself from putting peanut butter on the insides of my windows. It's <laughs> good to know. <laughs> but, but the outsides are very pollen-y and um, luckily I can get to the outside of my, most of my windows from my balcony. Um, yeah, so they need a good clean this weekend. Um, and I usually just use like old rags, like the first clean, I'll just use like an old rag or like an old sock is actually really good for that, like single socks and just like hot, hot, so- like a little bit soapy water, like biodegradable soap, um, just to get all the gunk off. And then I have these really great cloths that are like microfibery cloths that you just use with water on glass and mirrors and stuff. And it gets off like probably like again it's not going to be sufficient for like the outdoor pollen or the peanut butter but it is sufficient for like day-to-day just like getting smudges and stuff off of glass so then i'll go through and get the streaks off from that and that'll be good and then i'll be able to see outside Mm -hmm. that's nice seeing is good Mm -hmm. yeah yeah sunshine well i think that about brings us to the end of our episode we would love to hear your thoughts on this episode or any episode so please visit our website whale-tales.org and find links to our various social media handles so that you can drop us a line you can also tweet at us directly i am fhg07 sarah is sarah k given no h and nicole is nick f can c-a-n-n you can also head to our website. There you can subscribe to the podcast, check out our merchandise like mugs and shirts, uh, learn about supporting us and becoming a patron, and read over 1,100 whale, dolphin, and porpoise stories. That's whale-tales.org. Tales like the story, not tales like the animal. 
And if you've seen a citation, we would love to add your story to our library. Click on the share link on our website or contact us on social media. We're at whaletales.org or on Instagram, we're at whaletales underscore org. Or you can email us a voice memo and tell us all about your incredible encounter. Finally, we want to acknowledge that we recorded today's episode on the unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples and the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations, as well as the homelands of the Tawasan First Nation. Thank you again for listening and for supporting us, and we hope you all have a really great day. Bye! Bye. Bye.